0: Alright gang, welcome to the best Tuesday you've had all week. This is Dave Littlejohn and you've got the True Wealth Radio Show. Uh, stoked to be here uh, joining me in studio as always, the whiz kid, Matt Dixon. And uh, I, I don't know why I keep calling you whiz kid other than it's just like that nickname that sticks around.
1: Yeah, you know what? You just gotta roll with it. If it sticks, it sticks.
0: Okay, otherwise... Uh, it can, it becomes like, I don't want to call it psychic or something like that. Cause then it's like, it's not a Batman and Robin theme, hmm. right? Yeah. It's, no, it's more like, um, you Pinky in the brain. Okay. Do I get to be pinky? Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, boy, have we got a lot to talk about today? Uh, I think the obvious one is, is, is there an
1: elephant in the room here? Well,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, and and it's it's good, right? It's good that we could talk about this stuff and how this is going to connect. Uh, we're going to talk about banks, mm-hmm. right? We're going to talk specifically some of the story around Silicon Valley Bank, yeah. right, which was a biggie that happened last Friday. Okay, so it's it's been three business days and then the weekend for everybody to fester about it. And I will tell you that I have had Everything from clients sending me news articles to people calling with questions to other advisors that have been calling us and, and, you know, trying to get just feedback. And uh, here's the good news. I made Matt do all the work.
1: Yeah. Well, I got to tip my hat to you a little bit here because, like you just said, there was a lot of people wanting to know what's going on. And I'm going to give you a little bit of props on air. You kept your cool, right? And... You were very methodical about things. You didn't let emotions kind of wag the dog, as you would say. You were even keeled, and you took the time to say, hey, let's really look into this before making any assumptions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas a lot of people tend to hear a headline, you know, second largest banking collapse in the history of the United yeah, well, States.
0: since the financial crisis.
1: Right, yeah. So since 2008, yes, it was the... Biggest bank failure we've seen. So mm-hmm. it, Washington Mutual was the largest. I think that was a three hundred billion dollar bank that went upside down, and I think Silicon Valley was two hundred billion. So,
0: yeah, no, it's 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 a, big. It's a legitimately big, bank. but it's
1: a little bit different.
0: It is. So there's there's so much to unpack. Uh, if you're curious about this, by the way, I'm also we did a YouTube video about this this morning where we talked a little bit about it, and then we're doing today's show and we're going to really unpack some of this. I think that there are things that people understand about banks, and then there's things that people don't necessarily, like when I say people. like uh, The mass population. Yeah, I think our listeners are pretty smart. right? Uh, I'm not going to tell you I know everything about banks. I just have this little piece of history. I used to be a program manager for a bank. So Mm -hmm. this is back in the day. But I used to manage the investment program for Oregon Pacific Bank. And at the time that I was there, I was privy to sit in on board meetings. And so got to talk about things like policy and so forth, or I wasn't, I was listening, right, at that point. So younger man, this is uh, more than 10 years ago that this happened, but it was still very informative to see the banking side of the industry in while living in the investment industry. Because in some respects, they behave in opposite land. -hmm. Right, I mean, they they really do. They walk and talk. It's like, oh, they're finance. There's a lot of similarities, and then there's a lot of things that are inverses. Okay, so for example, like what a bank, what we think of as an asset, as investors, banks usually think of as liabilities, and vice versa. Right? Oh, a loan is a liability to you, but to a bank, that is their asset. Yeah. Okay. So that 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 mentality in banking being sort of inverse of what the the like the household balance sheet looks like is an important thing to understand. And if you start with that framework, then you can start to work backwards and understand what happened in the banking system. But let me give you a quick summary of it. I'm relatively optimistic that a lot of the bad news has work. already kind
1: of circulated through the system. Yeah, it's
0: it's it's been quickly priced into the system, perhaps overpriced into the system mm-hmm. because right? we did see that. We saw stock prices
1: of these banks.
0: We saw banks fall 40 to 70% on Monday.
1: Right, and then we saw 20, 30% recoveries in well, a day. Well, some of them
0: we saw 40% recovery in the same day. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, you you have a right. bank where I I saw a bank that was trading for around $42 a share go to as low as 7 mm-hmm. and then in the day down at like 40. Right. Okay. So th- that was a huge trading range and huge trading volume. Uh, if you, those of you that wear a tinfoil hat with me on occasion, wonder to yourselves, hmm, how do you get 10 times the normal volume and have that big of a swing? Somebody maybe got opportunistic, and I would suggest sure they did. But that's one of the great
1: things about the market, right? The market finds an exploit and quickly fills it. So if someone saw that the share prices went from 40 to 7 and they're looking at all the actual details and saying, hey, wait, this bank might not be affected the way the other banks are, that yeah. could have got sniffed out and everyone's I like... Hey. How,
0: like- I love how optimistic you are about this. Like, uh, because there's so much more virtue in having, looking at it saying, oh, see, the market, you know, filled this organically. I guess my foil hat wearing self says, I feel like high frequency traders may have had a lot to do with manipulating the order book to drive the price that low. Right. So that they okay. could then scoop it up when they had other computer programs that did forced sales. So talk a little right, bit about or how that might margin work. calls so on things. How could yeah. they
1: drive the price down to then, you know, be able to buy it back? Um
0: So when a stock is thinly traded. Mm-hmm. So okay. like
1: really low volume. Yeah, there's, there's not a lot of orders being executed. Yes, yeah. Yeah.
0: So it's not a lot of trades that are going on Mm -hmm. Uh, you can kind of bully the order book if you show up with a bunch of your own orders
1: right so if you can go in and say sell say maybe a million shares then you're going to be able to control the price well
0: you yeah you may you selling a million shares if there's nobody else to buy them Mm -hmm. means that the price keeps dropping until it's attractive enough to get a buyer Mm -hmm. but i don't i'm going to speculate here i can't say exactly how they do it but i have a sort of an idea how these high frequency trade shops do this. Some of this is through legalized, in some form or fashion, front running. Okay. Mm-hmm. So remember the whole thing with GameStop years, a yeah. couple years back, where uh, Robinhood ended up at one point. I mean, everybody was in trouble that was in a hedge fund that was shorting GameStop. There wasn't enough stock to borrow to cover the shorts. There were margin calls, and hedge funds were just losing their shirts. Right. And then finally, Robinhood, in a sort of panic moment, sort of forced out all of the buyers of the stock and only allowed sales.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Right? Huge controversy because they picked and chose the winners at that point and became not a market maker but a market manipulator.
1: They they sided with the hedge funds.
0: The hedge funds, exactly. And I believe it's because hedge funds had an ownership stake in Robinhood. I may be mistaken, by the Mm -hmm. way, but I think that that was part of the connection. And so Citadel was the big hedge fund at the time that was sort of part of the bullying. Well, Citadel had an agreement where they got to see the order flow from Robinhood. So they could tell mm. who was buying what and when. Now, but, that becomes really meaningful when you can see the order book and know where people have placed limit orders and stop orders and what have you. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're a high-frequency trader and you can look at the order book and say, you know...
1: Before it executes. Yeah, yeah, I can
0: see all of these different trades that are sitting out there on the books. You can, And you again, know. it may not be this, right? So so don't get me wrong here. And I'm not saying which company, so I'm not trying to make a liability statement here. But, but think about the concept. If this was the plumbing that undergirds this market, you can see all the orders you can tell there's not a lot of them. You own a bunch and you want to manipulate the price. So you start placing tiny orders in between that create a cascade effect where you start to go down and trigger the orders below. Mm -hmm. And you can just trip money in there until you get to a threshold where then you can push money in. And you can do this the other way. You could start driving the price up and then do forced liquidations when other people need to unwind a position because they're short or a long position waiting on a price to move down, you could take advantage of the knowledge of where those orders are and manipulate the order book so that you could personally improve your position. That makes sense. And that's what a lot of high frequency traders are doing is they're seeing the book and then they have these programmatic ways of trying to force the price movement to occur within the book. Now, people could show up in the middle of this process and throw the program off by entering their own trades in there, but if the high-frequency program can see the trades as they are entered, or prior to, then it still gets to be proactive. And some might say, wink, wink, nudge, foil hat, that that is market manipulation. Or front-running, which is illegal. Mm -hmm. But if we somehow name it something different, or if we have groups that are funding the people that make the rules, and then the rules don't get changed. Then maybe it's not a broken rule.
1: Oh man, there's so much gray area in that, isn't there?
0: It's yeah, and it's it's more of a there's the spirit of the law, mm-hmm. there's the letter of the law, and then there's the ethic of the law, right? yeah. and the ethic there gets pretty cloudy. Yeah. So, let's uh, thinking about this banking context. Mm-hmm. Like all of this to say that. We had a big move in banks. They're still down, but they've recovered significantly from their lows. And the question is, is it all going to burn down?
1: Well, I think first got to talk about where were the moves really at. Were they in the regional banks? Were they in the massive banks like JP
0: Morgan and Wells Fargo? Where were the moves really happening? Right. So we're going to unpack more of this. Because there, I I think there are answers, and I think there are good indicators. I want to talk about the silver lining to all of this. Okay, but we got to take a break. Stick around. You want to hear more about this whole the shenanigans of banking? What it means to you as an investor, and and why I why David thinks there's a silver lining, and we'll quiz Matt too. Okay, we'll cover that and more. We'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn and Matt Dixon, and you got True Wealth on News Radio 939 FM at twelve forty KQEN. All right, gang welcome back to the true wealth show where we're going to cover a bunch about banks today and so if you need to get caught up um roll out the podcast right so you can stick with us for now you can get caught up tomorrow podcast will be at littlejohnfs.com Um matt yeah so first of all walk through silicon valley bank when it died give us the mm-hmm. rundown what happened
1: well on wednesday the company decided they needed to send out a newsletter and so they let the people who bank at Silicon Valley Bank know that they needed to raise like $2 billion in capital. And so that, that statement went out and it triggered. Did they,
0: did, did they talk about why they needed to raise that, that much capital?
1: Um, they did. They were saying that they had some liabilities with their debt obligations that needed resolved and they wanted to be a little bit more liquid.
0: Okay, and, so yeah, th- this is code for we've the interest rates have gone up. Yeah. and our bond portfolio behind the scenes has been. Yeah, hit.
1: so what happened was the venture. Um, we'll sorry. unpack more of this, yeah. by the
0: way. So we'll tell the story. I so guess. So th- yeah. this
1: company really focused a lot on <clears throat> banking for people who are doing startup companies. Right. What happened was, is when the interest rates went up, it made it harder for these startup companies to borrow money. And things got more expensive. Inflation happened. Things were just simply expensive, and they needed more money. That was one of the reasons that they got to the point where the bank itself needed the extra two billion.
0: Yeah, I, and I had heard my understanding, and I've not studied this as much as you have, but mm-hmm. part of what um, Silicon Valley Bank did that was sort of unique with startups is. They would look for, they would work with startups that had venture capital. So, Mm -hmm. venture capital put money into the startup. Then they could go to SVB and say, Look, we have money now. And so, SVB would say, Oh, well, in that case, we can extend a line of credit to you. Right.
1: They were backed by venture capital groups.
0: But the line of credit, keep in mind is a variable line in Mm -hmm. most cases. So as rates go up, that increases the cost to those startups.
1: Exactly. And what ended up happening was on Wednesday, the two major venture capital groups sent out emails to all of these different companies that were banking there and said, hey, we recommend you go ahead and pull your money from the bank because we don't trust them anymore now that we got this email saying that they need extra capital.
0: Yeah, and and keep in mind also that the venture capital, these are the, they're the source of money for a lot right. of the startups. Right, they shot so, themselves so in the So if they say to you, hey, we recommend you move the money, the company, what, what are they gonna say? It's like, well, you know, you do kind of own us, so yeah. maybe we'll listen, right?
1: Yeah, so the people that were most vested in the bank send out this email, and it caused a social media panic, and the the startup groups did exactly what they recommended. They went in and requested to remove the funds and transfer them other places. And but this was a
0: big chunk of money that out. It ended up out. being, I
1: think, $47 billion.
0: Yeah, so $47 yeah. <laughs> I feel like, all right, so, you know... uh, uh a rabbit a, and a banker walk into a bar, right? Mm-hmm. And how, how do you feel about $47 billion, But right? it happened in one day. Well, and, and what was it, a $200 billion bank? yeah so you're talking about almost 25 percent of the assets of the of the deposits for the bank i don't know how many much they had in deposit but 47 billion is not trivial no it's a big chunk of money walking out the door for the bank to say oh well what do we do let's just go to the the teller drawer and pull it out real quick."
1: well so what they did in response to this is they immediately went to trying to sell all of their debt obligations right and so imagine if they had loaned money, say the bank had it bought a loan or loaned money at a low interest rate, now rates are higher. So if they go to sell all of their their notes and their CDs and their bonds, they were having to sell them at a loss, which is what they did. They started selling stuff at a loss, and by the end of the following day, they, their balance sheet was Negative $956 million.
0: Yeah. So just for math, so everybody can see this, uh, it was uh, according to, you know, Google research, mm-hmm. take it as valuable as you want. Uh, so it, they had $175 billion in deposits and mm-hmm. then 40, I think it was 47. 47. 47 so yeah. over 40, you know, between 40 and 50 billion walks out the door. Mm -hmm. More than 25% of their assets. Now, for most banks, they don't have a reserve. I mean, if they have a reserve requirement, that means they have to have enough assets in reserve to actually handle a liquidation of that size. And this was a forced liquidation of assets in order to provide the money to the customers that were leaving. Yep, Asset in this case, the banks, they had the reserves, but they had put the reserves in treasuries or other instruments and the other instruments is key here because some of them were other banks right right? and they had things like mortgage-backed securities that was one that probably makes a little alarm go off in your mind Hmm. because that was part of what blew up 2008 yeah so they have this portfolio of monies that are part of their reserve requirement because banks don't keep dollar for dollar reserves for every customer they're not used to having more than 25% of the customers show up and ask for the money on the same day
2: mm-hmm.
0: within a 12-hour window. Right, That's not typical. And so this was a massive withdrawal request, and their hand was essentially forced Is well, you have to liquidate your reserves. And the reserves were not as valuable as they'd have been initially purchased because interest rates had gone up. Mm-hmm. And we've been on this program before and talked about it. when rates go up, bond prices do the opposite. They go down. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't you know, they were, it was like a fire sale and it was below cost, right? We're, we, you know, we just got to get this inventory out the door, even if we lose money on it. And lose money they did. And that's what set off all the alarms. Correct. So the bank got hammered by kind of an engineered run on the bank.
1: Mm hmm. Had those emails not gone out, we probably wouldn't be sitting here talking about it right now.
0: Yeah. I think that there were a number of things that could have happened that would have potentially changed the entire scenario. Mm-hmm. That being said, it, it would have involved, like once you do this one time, then it creates a new set of problems, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever the bank did to get, so overbalanced in such a way that they could create a frenzy and everybody make a run on that bank. It was a problem. What has happened is the Federal Reserve and the FDIC and all the other banking players, I believe it's FDIC that's really doing this, Mm -hmm. not the Fed itself, has said no bank account holders are losing money on this deal. Even if your account was higher than the FDIC insurance limit, they're backstopping the account holders they are going to allow the bank to fail. Mhm. So Silicon Valley Bank is going under. Okay. Whether it gets sort of rolled into a different bank and it's sort of force merged by the FDIC or how it ultimately plays out, I don't know yet.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't know. But but what I can tell you is will this continue to spread from a contagion perspective? I'm not convinced because I think that the run on Silicon Valley Bank was unique to them. I mean, is that what you're reading, Yeah,
1: I mean, there were two other collapses in the banking system other than the Silicon Valley Bank. One of them was Silvergate and the other one was SB. So, but the difference with those two is they were both predominantly crypto-based banking platforms. Mm -hmm. And that was where most of their assets were tied up. And then we saw things like FTX fail. Mm-hmm. And that took a huge. That, I mean, that hit that company, Silvergate and um, SB. Well, this
0: was, was this on Friday or was this prior? Well, that
1: was prior. So that yeah, happened. Yeah. So this year, that was, right, was that was back two. in December. Fast forward okay. to where we are in March. Um, it just it was a combination of a few things. FTX right. was part of it, but a lot of faith between December and now was lost in the crypto space, and people. It was a, it was a run on the bank, but it just didn't happen so rapidly. Mm-hmm. And so when I think I think it was kind of the tip of the iceberg when Silicon Valley happened, I think a lot of people rushed to also remove their crypto balances out of those banks, and that's why we saw those other two fall. Yeah,
0: a run on a bank really can strain a bank pretty badly. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing about it, and why I think this is maybe less likely, is. In in each of these scenarios, what you had was banks that had heavily structural problems. Yeah, yeah. So, can you explain a little bit more what you mean when you say structural problem? Just for our listeners,
1: <clears throat> their their funds weren't diversified, and they might have a lot of unsecured debt on the table. And so, like um, Silvergate, I think had sixty eight percent of okay. their funds that were it was you above
0: know, the FDIC w- limit.
1: Right. I yeah. And so, the way that the banks were structured really caused, allowed them the potential to fail. If you look at a big company like J.P. Morgan Chase, right? They have so much money and they're regulated, I feel like, in a little bit different manner. And so the way that they're structured, it would be much harder to have a run on that bank because where are you gonna run to?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, while it's possible, the question of, yeah, mm-hmm. how are you, where are you gonna put your money if it's not in that bank, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, what I what I think is important for everybody to consider too is, banks. What's the diversity of your customer base as a bank, mm-hmm. right? When when they're heavily, sort of banking with, the startup community, and the startup community becomes a herd of lemmings and starts jumping off a cliff, they're really impacted by that. Had they had, only ten percent of their assets instead of twenty five or thirty percent of their assets. Mm-hmm. Committed to that segment of the population, then yeah. the outcome could have been different. Right? That's true. So the question is, how do you get all of the groups into a coordinated run on the bank? Mm-hmm. And the other issue is, it's not a good idea to do, right? It's like why? Like a run on the bank is sort of self-destructive, right? And so that's that's an issue as well. Uh, so I, I I think once you see this, most well, I mean, most people have heard of the Great Depression. Not everybody understands why it happened, but it, it was precipitated by a run on the banks. Mm-hmm. And that's what brought about the FDIC in the first place. Right Prior well, to the Great Depression, there was no FDIC.
1: One of the things that I learned when I started really digging into this was I, I took a look at where are the debt obligations within the banks. Mm-hmm. And what I noticed was the regional banks carried a lot more... Um, how do I want to say this? Their their debt obligations were higher in the treasuries in in the the lower interest rate yeah. field, whereas the More bigger banks, grade, yeah, exactly. The bigger banks I think did a better job of seeing this coming, and they didn't lock as much money up long term. They they didn't buy as much in these lower interest rate environments, and they're better protected long-term because of it.
0: Yeah, and and ironically, the fact that many startup banks probably or many startup entities, which when money was cheap, mm-hmm. venture capital was throwing money at these startups And they were because, making a lot more. Well, I mean, and, look at how fast Silicon Valley grew. They were the fastest growing bank. And it, it makes sense when you consider when capital's cheap, then you can't get a return on fixed income, so what do you do? You start putting the risk capital to work, yes. and you're getting a better return on your risk in startups—high risk, high reward. In so, Silicon Valley, and was Silicon Valley high Bank risk. is catering to this group, so they're yep. giving lines of credit when money's cheap. So they're securing the lines of credit with low interest deposits, well, and or, look or at, rather low yeah. interest securitization, right, in their own bond portfolio behind the scenes. Well, and then. The markets move and they go, uh, uh-oh, no, our customers exactly right. have slowed down and our reserve requirements have been hammered at the same time.
1: You're exactly right. Think back to COVID era when IPOs were going nuts, right? Like anything the IPO did yeah. amazing and well, the so money they was were cheap. making yeah. money.
0: It was what well, was risk on. It was. Right? But in now, 2021 yeah. in particular, very risk on. 2022 risk off. And if you think about, it, we're basically at the one year anniversary since the Fed started raising rates. Mm-hmm. It's been a year and we've seen rates go from, you know, treasuries have gone, 10-year treasuries have gone from like 2% to, f- you know, f- 4.5 or something. So we've seen a, a big, big push. Uh, interestingly enough, the long end of the yield curve hasn't moved as much. Like, you know, short-term rates are higher than long-term rates right now. So we have an inverted yield curve, too, typically a sign of recession to come. And we can argue that one, too. Like, have we are we already there? Hmm. Well... So we now have the backdrop for what happened. Yeah. Like like what created the SVB debacle?
1: I think our listeners want to know now, well, what does this mean for me and where are things going?
0: I think you're right, but we have to take an evil profit break first. Okay. So everybody stick around. When we come back, we're going to unpack that. We'll talk about what does this mean for you as an investor and more. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. Yeah, True Wealth on Niche Radio 939 FM and 1240 KQE. Hey, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Show. Hey, Matt. Yep. We are talking about Silicon Valley Bank today and we've talked about what caused the whole collapse. Uh, I know you got an interesting piece of data that just came through. We
1: just got a text message. We haven't verified this yet. Yeah, we're still
0: looking at the source, but if it's accurate.
1: Only 2.7% of Silicon Valley bank deposits were less than $250,000, which means that's 97% that weren't FDIC insured.
0: Yeah. That would be enough of a cost. I could see now why uh, why, Silicon Valley, uh, why they could find themselves in the crosshairs. If you're a venture capitalist and you're going, so let me understand this, you guys have taken the VC dollars and deposited it in a bank that is now financially in trouble and we're nowhere within the parameters of FDIC coverage, you need to move those funds.
1: Yeah. Now I'm starting to get curious. I mean, that's a lot of money that we're talking about. Yeah. because i mean we're talking billions of dollars here how is the fdic going to make sure that these people are made whole i mean they said that they're going to do it now i'm going to start diving into how exactly they plan to well, do it because they said the fdic
0: is an insurance corporation remember right. federal depository insurance corporation right. so they have reserves for situations this, like this this, but this as is well. such
1: a big situation yeah i mean that's a big and, and
0: statement and there are other things that could Occur mm-hmm. if the bank wasn't, if it wasn't too late, right? Once once right. the bank is already sort of bankrupted, because then, they're
1: going to be able to dissolve the bank and assets and then disperse those out to. Well, there's yeah. some
0: of that, but there's also the idea that uh, one of the sources of liquidity is the Federal Reserve, right? The Federal Reserve has a liquidity window which which mm-hmm. they could have borrowed and uh, they could have probably created uh, like a an unusual. You know, short-term solution like maybe thirty days interest-free from the uh, Fed window, mm-hmm. and then that gives them thirty days with which to balance the books and sort everything out. And it probably could have been done under the supervision of FDIC, so that there there was some forced compliance within regulation and so forth to 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 reduce the risks associated with their portfolios, right? I don't know all of the details about it cuz I'm not a banker. Right. Right? But I think that there could have been some limited policy management that that maybe could have impacted this. The, with the benefit of hindsight, you can propose whatever you want, right? Mm-hmm. I mean everybody had to act fast and uh, I think a bailout is pretty untenable. Right. I, I mean like, it just it just doesn't look right to to bail out a bank that uh you know kind of set itself up that right. way cuz what happens is now you've incentivized bad behavior across the whole system. There, there mm-hmm. needs to be consequences for mismanagement, even if it was to say maybe you shouldn't be taking on all of these deposits in in an environment where they are heavily dependent on a single area, mm-hmm. right? You know, the, the know your customer rules that, that apply in the financial services side of things. You, well, you know, is that appropriate for banking? For what, what level of deposits? Or maybe what you should be doing is saying, those deposits end up being non-interest bearing, right? And your reserves are simply like really, really short-term, uh, you know, 90-day Treasury kind of stuff. Where you go there, there's really no interest rate risk, or it's so nominal that you'd be okay with it mm-hmm. because you, you know you're just not going to pay interest, and then and then you don't have that type of duration risk in your bond portfolio. For for everybody's listening right now, they just went like, yeah, nerdy speak, nerdy speak, nerdy speak, right? A few of you understand what I'm talking about, and thanks. The rest of you, sorry. Uh, Let's get back to what it means. That's
1: why there's a podcast, so you can go back and re-listen to it and hit pause. Well,
0: again, (laughs) this isn't supposed to be the banking show. It's just that there's these underlying issues that caused it, right? We we know that (laughs) Silicon Valley, you know, by hook or by crook, ended up over... Extended in these areas, and it blew up. Here's
1: one of the things I think listeners might be questioning, wondering, and want answers to. So we saw a banking collapse in 2008. We know that in 2008, these were this was a bigger banking problem, whereas this is more concentrated to a regional problem. Do you want to talk a little bit about how this is different than 2008 and maybe give listeners a little bit of comfort in that?
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, there's way more reserves now Mm -hmm. than there were before. I mean, Silicon Valley Bank, I think, is unique. And I think uh, history will sort of reveal this as just over-concentrated. Whereas it
1: wasn't a universal banking problem throughout the entire system. This
0: is not a systemic problem. This was a Silicon Valley Bank problem. Right. What we had was a systemic problem in 2008, where the blood banks were generically undercapitalized, and then we had some changes in accounting regulations that exacerbated it. Mm-hmm. Right? We had a, a moment of what they called mark-to-market accounting, where many banks had purchased illiquid assets, which this is a problem for reserves because they need to be liquid if you are called upon to provide capital. Mm-hmm. Right, and which so, is the
1: problem we just saw. Yeah.
0: So if they're illiquid then they really shouldn't count very easily. Mm-hmm. And that's that was the sort of the original point was, OK, well, we better mark to market what the real value of this stuff is if it was forced to liquidate. And once they did that, it revealed that many of these banks had inadequate capital mm-hmm. by that standard. Right? It was the change in accounting rules that created the cascade effect, where all of a sudden, everybody was undercapitalized, and it sort of imploded. And then they kind of rolled back the mark to market accounting later. But by then, the cascade failure. I always use that term. I think of it like a, a few, like a circuit breakers in your house, right? low well, the first one goes, and then like three or four more go. It's like Christmas lights, right? Like <laughs> as soon as the first strand goes, it's like no, they all start to go. That that's sort of the issue. And um, anyway, that so this does not really seem to be the case. Like I don't mm-hmm. think other banks have. The same kind of balance sheet as Silicon Valley Bank. I think it was very unique, so yeah. we would call this idiosyncratic risk. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I've talked about the silver lining to this. What am I? What do I mean?
1: I think one of the silver linings that we can take away from this is there's we're going to look at this and see where the issue was, and there's probably going to be some added regulation down the line to try and prevent situations from like similar to this from happening again
0: yeah and if you look at the price of silver really unrelated to this but i just couldn't resist the silver joke with silver lining there may come more regulation i i'm always it's a double-edged sword right i I rarely look at regulation as like yay regulation because it tends to burden the marketplace and make it more expensive for consumers but then again lack of regulation tends to lead to things like imbalance however in this case This may become a self-correcting event right oh you guys did this and got burned by it so other banks take note and don't do that Mm -hmm. and regulators will probably go in and say well we have another thing that we're going to look at when we're checking for fiscal health of an organization yep which includes you know what kind of deposits do you have you know what what what's the distribution of your customer base and where these funds what's the source of funds so okay But I think there's some other things. What else is on your mind? I think the stock market could view this as, this is going to be counterintuitive, but it could be viewed as a positive.
1: Are you thinking that if the, the Fed looks at this and says, hey, we jacked up the rates really quickly, and because we jacked up the rates, it had something to do with a banking failure, maybe the Fed starts to back off on the rate hikes and then the market looks at that and says, hey, this is a green flag, this is a positive, so let's go ahead and start a little bit of a rally. So it could positively affect the stock market, potentially.
0: Potentially, yeah. I mean, if if you consider, uh, I've used this term, again, it's kind of on the video that, uh, again, if you go to our YouTube channel, it should be up and live now too. The Fed may be... A little boxed in right mm-hmm. the fed if you'll forgive the expression they're kind of damned if they do and damned if they don't right now right because if they raise rates they could stress the balance sheets of too other banks too dramatically yeah maybe i mean other banks are probably positioning right now and uh, the fdic may be saying you know we need to have some policy accommodation to make sure that uh this circumstance does not blow up but the the fed is aware that you don't want to create a, a hardship on the financial system uh, that's self-induced, right? Like let's so 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 that's part of it. Mm-hmm. And the other part is we saw the CPI figures come in today, right? Consumer right. price index. Wasn't why? it? Like, why is the fed raising rates?
1: Because inflation's high. It was at it, I think at its highest it was slightly over 7%, but Oh, it's I more think... than that. For a while, we yeah. saw
0: like nine percent at one time. Yeah, or close. I mean, it's crazy. It's well it's from really the last. Yeah,
1: but from the last report, even from it... the
0: last CPI release was at seven, and now it's down to six.
1: Right. So we've seen it start to taper.
0: Yeah. Why raise the rates? What does it do?
1: It tightens spending down.
0: Yeah. It increases the cost of capital. hmm Right. The cost to borrow. So higher cost to borrow, less borrowing, and less money in circulation.
1: What causes inflation? Too much money chasing too few goods, but if we can take that money yeah. out of circulation, there's then not as much money, money to, yeah, chasing those the goods. goods.
0: <laughs> so you can see that. It's right. The demand for housing drops when you can't get the money to pay extra for a house.
1: Housing, vehicle purchases, RV purchases, anything where you're having to borrow on credit.
0: Yeah. If, you, if, you're, if you're paying over time and you have to pay more, it makes the thing cost more. Mm-hmm. So if you cannot borrow as much, you simply, like you can't go and get, like, like if you only have the purchasing power to buy a $300,000 house, you don't look at $400,000 houses because mm-hmm. that's not an option. Well, you maybe could have before with lower rates, but now that rates are more expensive, you don't have the borrowing power. That is a shift in the amount of money that's available to chase after the same amount of goods. So that's why they raise rates. But if we start to look at where the Fed is now cornered, what does that mean? Hmm. It means we take our last break and then we come back and explain it. I'm ready. (laughs) All right. Stick around, gang. If you want to see how this may positively impact the market, we're going to kind of draw the connections for you. We'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. We got True Wealth on News Radio 939 FM and 1240 KQEN. Welcome back to the True Wealth Show, where Matt Dixon's about to tell all of the investors out there what happens out now that Silicon Valley Bank went under.
1: Well, now that it's has just, just predict the future oh, right now. Okay. Well, <laughs> I think that. There's not much to predict because we saw them collapse. We've seen a few others that were heavily based in crypto collapse. And now things are kind of getting restructured a little bit for the people that were at those banks. And we live to see another day.
0: Okay, so that's what happens to banks. What happens to the stock market?
1: Well, surprisingly, while all this was happening, the stock market was doing pretty well. Yeah. That was the part that, I mean, you could you could go and look at the different sectors, and it's like, hey, tech was doing great as the banks were struggling. Yeah. And so I don't know that the market is that heavily affected by this one little tiny, tiny segment of the entire marketplace.
0: Here's what I noticed that I think is interesting. Uh, so bond yields dropped. They did. Okay. Now, why would that happen?
1: Well there was a move to safety, right? Mm-hmm. And so as you know people took that money and bought a ton of bonds. For the bond safety. Yeah, yeah, for safety, then the yield went down because if everyone wants to buy it, they don't have to pay you as much
0: interest. Right. Yeah, the the yield went down because price went up because of mm-hmm. increased demand. What I what I took away though is the indexes had an okay day mm-hmm. because the indexes are fairly heavily weighted to Tech. Large tech. Mm-hmm. And if money ran to large tech and bonds, that implies that large tech is defensive now. That is which a weird. Also, it's true. Yeah, it, which it, this doesn't make it true, right? I'm not making a recommendation to go do anything when I say this, but I'm saying I find it interesting that large tech was a beneficiary during a sort of a, a flight to safety. It implies that the price of large tech is approaching fair market value
1: mm-hmm. and we've actually seen it all year if you just look at where the money's been flowing and how different yeah. segments have done tech's actually done really good
0: yeah and, and so if you just think about the macro things that move around in the market and say well where did the money move to in a, in a fear scenario and it went to these areas when the fear subsided then where did it go so well you know it went back into small caps then you go, that's interesting that, that capital is continuing to look for times like, like. well, maybe the small caps are on sale. Maybe Again, this is just theoretical, but if they're on sale, then the money moves there when it's a risk-on environment, and it moves out of there back into big tech and bonds when it's risk-off. Mm-hmm. Then you start to see where is the market leaning into for the good times or the bad. Right. And so it's this movement of capital that becomes interesting because it's so hard to say, well, this indicator means this thing. Mm Well, as the times change, different things can have a more reliable indication than others. Right. Yeah. That was a really poorly phrase. I I mean, basically the types of signals you need to pay attention to change. Right. right, It used to be, oh, well, we look at price-to-earnings ratio. Now it's like, well, we look at price-to-earnings ratio depending on what sector it's in, and we have to figure out the sector, too. And now it could be maybe as simple as, well, we look at where if the cost of capital is going to start coming back down mm-hmm. because we think we're at peak rates, then that's good for small companies again because it means they're going to start to get more access to money to start growing again. Mm-hmm. That is... It's a sign Pretty, of hope. Well, it's it, yeah, it, it's interesting, but it's also sort of a counterargument, right? It, you need to be a contrarian if you're thinking that way as opposed to thinking more real-time and like, nope, things are bad, so I need to be out of the markets. Well, the Warren Buffetts of the world say you buy it when it's scary time and sell it when everybody's happy, right? Be mm-hmm. fearful when people are greedy and greedy when people are fearful. So it's a good time to check your investment thesis. Why am I investing? what is my time horizon? What is my risk tolerance? These are all really good questions. And what do I expect looking forward? I think the market may be giving us some tells. Mm -hmm. So last last part of the day, Matt, our financial term of the day. Did you bring some into studio for us? Silicon Valley Bank.
1: Oh, that is now a- financial term because they cease to exist that's a <laughs> that's a cheap shot it's a little below the belt and i love it
0: i i do too silicon valley bank what is that when you pretend to be a bank no when <laughs> yeah when you're a bank in name but not under the hood
1: Ooh yes yes silicon true. valley bank
0: it's it's a toughie right we're picking on them but i think that uh appropriate for today's show that is uh, our financial term of the week silicon valley I like bank it. which svb is probably going to become sort of like ftx it's going to yeah. have it's going to have a reputation it's going
1: to carry some weight yeah.
0: look at the end of the day if you have questions as an investor we want to make this offer to you as well uh, reach out to our office and we got some free tools online if you go to littlejohnfs.com you can do a portfolio stress test. We have a couple of other things that you can look at as well. And if you just want to sit down with an advisor, we offer a free consult uh, just for a second opinion. Uh, We're always welcome to do that. So Give us a call. How do they reach us, Matt? Give us a
1: ring at 541-375-0898.
0: All right. That and then uh, you can also email us info at littlejohnfs.com. And, again, uh, check out the website. Lots of free tools there and the rest of this podcast if you missed the show. But we're out of time for now, so thanks as always. Until um, next time, I'm Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you've been listening to the True Wealth on News Radio 939 FM at 1240 KQEN. The preceding program was paid for by Littlejohn Financial Services. The opinions and views expressed may not reflect those of Brook Communications, its affiliates, or its employees.